Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Nearly a century of rich Western U.S. history is captured in a relatively small tract of land rising above the Laramie and North Platte rivers in eastern Wyoming. That history dates back at least to 1834, when Bill Sublette and a partner set up a small trading post to capture some profits of the fur trade flowing out of the Rocky Mountains. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. I've come to Fort Laramie National Historic Site to learn more about this history, and I've asked Ranger Clayton Hansen to be my guide. We'll be back after a short break to explore this incredible 19th century setting. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Interior Federal Credit Union is the newest sponsor of the National Parks Traveler. It is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. This month, the credit union is celebrating 86 years in business. It was first started by Department of Interior employees and eventually opened its membership to like-minded groups. Its ultimate goal is to be your natural resource for financial services. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit interiorfcu.org to find other ways to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The National Park Service didn't acquire Fort Laramie until 1938. And when it did, it came into a rich trove of Western history dating all the way back to 1834. To gain an overview of that history, we're walking the fort's grounds with park guide Clayton Hansen. And Clayton, this site really goes back to the, the fur trade days. I mean, it's seen it all from the early 1800s to the present day. Oh, absolutely. And even earlier than 1834 in a lot of ways, uh, we're fairly aware that Jacques uh, Laramie, or Laramie, or there are many different ways to pronounce and write his name. Um, he was probably present here when there were rendezvous here in, in the 1820s even. But really, you're right, in 1834, 
is when uh, the American Fur Company uh, establishes, you know, Robert Campbell and William Sublette establish a permanent post here at Fort Laramie. Uh, though that's, they called it Fort William, um, named after Sublette. And it's not really clear where Fort William was, though we're at one of the probable locations, uh, which is near this, you know, beautiful fort across the Laramie River, which you can probably hear in the background. And also above the floodplain, very important if, you, uh, if you're building a fort. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and back then, um, it was kind of towards the height or even the decline of the, the beaver fur trade, wasn't it? Uh, true, it was. Uh, however, the buffalo or bison hide trade was taking off in that era, and that's one of the, actually, the big uh, draw for this fort in a lot of ways. You know, there were still beaver furs coming in, absolutely from the Rocky Mountains and beyond, but because this was a, in many ways a meeting place, sort of at the edge of the traditional um, lands of the Lakota, at the edge of the traditional lands of the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, not far from the Shoshone or Crow as well. This would be, this is a great place to, to meet one another and meet with, uh, you know, those Europeans who are traveling, European Americans who are traveling from uh, the East, you know, bringing metal goods, especially, you know, firearms, kettles, uh, beads, I could go on and on. <laughs> I'm sure you could. <laughs> now, of course, the, the, the bison um, slaughter, the great slaughter, as they called it, and Fort Laramie, I believe, was uh, the largest military installation and, and trading post. There must have been a, quite a lot of hides come through here. Uh, yes, uh, well, at least in the 1830s and 40s. I mean, it certainly changes when it becomes a military post. The, you know, the Great Slaughter mostly takes place after the Civil War, you know, in the 1870s and the 1880s. But uh, sure, when we, we have an opportunity in a little bit to go to the Post Trader store, and I can talk a little about, you know, how the hides would have been brought in there and sold. But yeah, a huge number absolutely during that period, those 20 uh, some years when it was a fur train post and even the 40 some years after that, uh, or that it was a military post. Now, of course, um, Fort Laramie is, is quite sprawling as we, we look across, you know, across the parade ground out to Old Bedlam and to the barracks and whatnot. But Fort William really was a much smaller operation. Yes, so Fort William and Fort John, which was its successor. So Fort William was the wooden stockade fort. Uh, you know, for uh, those of your listeners who are, uh, you know, Gen X and younger, they may have uh, played the Oregon Trail game. And when you see, when you arrive at Fort Laramie, that's sort of what's depicting the wooden stockaded fort. Uh, fort John was a uh, adobe fort and they would have been about, um, imagine we're looking at, at this small sort of two-story building here. We call this the captain's quarters. Uh, it would have only been about four times the size of this building. Imagine one more of this house, so about uh, you know about 50 feet by 50 feet on each side. So not not very big at all. So, but in many ways, you know, these weren't defensive uh, locations. They were, at least in the sense of you think of like military posts, because they were trading posts. These uh, the, these walls were kind of like putting a chain link fence up. You know, keep the trade goods in inside essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now we're we're standing in front of this beautiful placard uh, overlooking the Laramie River. And uh, you've got a, a painting of Fort Laramie or Sublet's Fort by, by Alfred Jacob Miller. And it's got this incredible stockade fort, for lack of a better yes. word. Was, was that the, the type of construction that existed those days? Yeah, absolutely. So Alfred Jacob Miller did paint this. And, you know, you can see that even though you, the, those, uh, the people next to it, you know, it was not bad. You know, it's 25, 30 feet uh, tall walls. Um, even though sometimes they say 15 feet, it's not really clear exactly how much he's exaggerating, exactly how much... Uh, it was there, so maybe I should say 15 to 30 feet. Um, so 15 to 30 feet uh, in their walls. And it would have been yeah, a wooden stockaded fort just like that. But again, you can see those dimensions. Uh, the, imagine each of these persons is, you know, 
five and a half feet or so, and you put them together there, and you end up with about 10 lined up and 50 feet on each corner, to each corner. And did that encompass Fort John? Uh, yes. Fort John uh, was built here. We know that for certain. Uh, Fort William, one of the leading theories is it was also in this location. One of the problems is when you're a archaeologist, and I'm not an archaeologist, but I, I talk with them a lot, is material culture in the 1830s and then in the early 1840s is not very different <laughs> from one another. Uh, so it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, but this would, would have been a good location uh, for Fort William as well. Uh, so we believe that it was, uh, was here. So Fort John just uh, essentially replaced it. Yeah, when the army purchased uh, the fort in 1849 uh, from the American Fur Company, it actually used Fort John as storage, as a hospital, until the late 1850s when they demolished it. Uh, actually, completely demolished it in 1862. I keep forgetting. What was the um, military looking for when they acquired the fort? And uh, was it 1849? 49. Well, what the military was looking for was um, essentially a turnkey solution uh, to the fact that there was already this huge immigration taking place along the Platte River Road. So this was this was already a finished building. Uh, the army was really pressed for <laughs> cash at the time. Uh, so spending, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars, again, multiplied by about 30 to get today's, uh, today's value, uh, for example. So a half a million dollars and you already have a building in place uh, to serve as the anchor for when you build a larger military post that would simply be here uh, on the Oregon and, and California and Mormon pioneer trails. Uh, was a very important part of why they picked this location. And it, of course, and the same reason that the um, the fur traders were here. This is, again, above the floodplains here, but still well watered with both the Laramie and the Platte Rivers, um, a meeting place, uh, an embassy on the plains in a lot of ways with the Native American peoples. So both to fly the flag and, uh, and if you need to have a meeting with any of the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, the Shoshone, uh, the Crow, and many other peoples of the Northern Plains, uh, this is not a bad place to have it. Now, you mentioned the immigrants coming through, and it was the, uh, you had a mix, I guess, of the, the gold rush and then the, the Oregon Trail, immigrants going out to Oregon and California, the West Coast. And when you come to visit Fort Laramie, make sure you go over to Guernsey and see the Guernsey ruts um, that are still quite visible from all the wagon trains coming through. But this location, did it take on the appearance of a small town at times? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, especially by the 1860s, this really was the largest uh, you know, town uh, or permanent town uh, of European Americans in Wyoming in a lot of ways, and, and at least until the construction of Cheyenne, you know, an instant town along the railroad. Uh, there would have been perhaps a thousand people uh, living here. Um, so Living here, not, not the immigrants coming through. Yes, not the immigrants coming through. But and, and imagine, of course, when the immigrants are coming through, you know, they have to come through in a pretty narrow window to make it over uh, the Sierra Nevadas, the Cascades, and even the Wasatch. Uh, so imagine coming here you know, say in the first week of July in 18, uh, you know, 61 even, or even 1859, let's put it before the Civil War. And there would have been, you know, tens of thousands of people stretching in either direction along the trails, uh, making those ruts in, uh, in Guernsey and also the ruts just outside the fort here. We have a set, very beautiful setup on, on the bluffs, uh, the, old, the Bedlam ruts, which always uh, invite people to go up there and take a look at those. Very different than the Guernsey ruts though. So imagine, you know, about a thousand people here, but then tens of thousands in either direction as I said. So really, you know, this would have been a dusty, busy, busy place for a minute, for at least those few weeks of the year. That must have been quite the sight to see. Yes. Now, of course, um, 
the Park Service hasn't been able to restore all the buildings here. You've got uh, quite a few ruins in mm -hmm. various states of uh, uh, collapse or standing up, if you will. Um, where should we go next? Should we, we're right here at the captain's quarters. Should we hit that or? Well, yes, let's, let's, let's take a look at the captain's quarters. We can talk a little bit more about the military history of the fort and, and some of the other stories. Now, of course, today it's a, it's a beautiful day. We've got blue sky, a gentle breeze, not too hot, not too cold. Um, but it must have been quite different in, say, August. Uh, absolutely. So if you read uh, the medical history, often the post-surgeons, they were some of the few scientifically trained men who would be permanently at a post. They were also topographical engineers and Corps of Engineers staff that'd be here every once in a while. But they, one of their jobs is to record, you know, weather events. And, you know, just in many ways like today, you know, you would have had very, very hot days in July and August, um, you know, temperatures in the 90s or even triple digits, even in the 1840s and 50s. And of course, the, the, the view from here is incredible. I mean, eastern Wyoming is, is almost tabletop flat in places, although if you look to the, the west of the fort, you can see uh, Laramie Peak um, on the horizon. Um, but right around here, I mean, yeah, we're on this slight rise above the river, and uh, you can see for quite a distance. Oh, yeah. No, the, the bluffs on either side of the Platte, North Platte River Valley here are, you know, really incredible. This is really that transition. That, that Plaza Pancake Land begins just east of here, and we're just coming up into the mountains. And in fact, you know, the, uh, the immigrants, to just digress about them a little more, as they would have uh, come to Fort Laramie, they would have talked about how they're approaching the Black Hills. Uh, they don't mean the Black Hills in South Dakota. They mean the Laramie Mountains. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I like to say that, you know, imagine this. You're coming from someplace like Indiana, you know, where the highest point in the entire state is about 5,000 feet, and you're at about 5,000 feet right here, and in front of you is a, is a peak that's over 10,000. Though the U.S. Army bought itself an existing fort, it was in rather shabby condition when the first troops moved in. Some days before Company C, the Mounted Rifles, arrived in late July of 1849, emigrant William Kelly reached the adobe fort and was disappointed by what he found. My glowing fancy vanished before the wretched reality, a miserable, cracked, dilapidated enclosure. Some of it propped with beams of timber, which an enemy had only to kick away, and down would come the whole structure. By the mid-1850s, things were not much better. In his book, Fort Laramie, Military Bastion of the High Plains, Douglas C. McChristian describes Fort Laramie as a bizarre combination of architecture, including a walled fort with bastions, a southern plantation-style house, southwest adobes, simple frame cottages, and stone buildings. But the army, once it moved in, worked on improving living conditions. By 1870, a two-story framed house had been built to serve as the commanding officer's quarters but it ended up being turned into a duplex for officers and their families. Today, that's known as the Captain's Quarters. Well, welcome to the Captain's Quarters. Uh, we call this uh, the Captain's Quarters, even though that wasn't uh, all it ever was, but later on it was a duplex where commanding officers for companies would have lived with uh, their families. Um, we were talking about how this was a town in a lot of ways, and for much of its history, uh, the Civil War is really one of the big exceptions regular army officers would have brought their families uh, here. So there would have been, uh, essentially, this is a duplex, so this side would have been one captain, the other side would have been another. And so you can see, uh, you know, if you take a peek inside, you know, imagine this is a middle-class home in Victorian America, uh, just transported, you know, a thousand miles across the Great Plains to, uh, to eastern Wyoming. 
Got the stereo view on the table. Nice, nice little wood stove over on the side. Oh yeah, and the violin, of course. You can make some music. And is that is that a violin or is that a fiddle? Ooh, that's I, a fiddle. I, th I think it's a fiddle. <laughs> well, all right. Well, that's uh, that's a good question. So, what what is the difference? I always wonder. <laughs> I could tell you the difference later, but. Uh... All right. Well, but I'll say a, a string instrument that you play a bow on. There you go. There you go. <laughs> it looks like there's a mandolin even behind it. So, or is that, or a, is that banjo? a banjo? Yeah. yeah. Again, kind of hard to see. Yeah. So they they tried to make life as pleasant as possible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but and this was you know in some ways. Forts like this represented the bringing of this kind of like industrial America uh, to, the, to the, the far west uh, for good and ill. Um, and for, you know, the ill part, I mean, we can talk about some of the history of conflict on the northern plains if you're interested with the Native American peoples. But for good, what well, you're right, this was this comfortable home here uh, for officers and their wives and their families and, you know, often their servants, too. Uh, officers were upper middle class or upper upper class men based on their payments, so often they did have servants with them, especially someone like a captain who's being paid quite handsomely for the nineteenth century. <laughs> were they servants or were they slaves? Ah, now that's a good that's a good question. So obviously after the Civil War, they were servants. Yeah, I'm not aware of any uh, enslaved people who were brought here prior to the Civil War. Ah. There we are. Uh, one of our bugle calls. But that doesn't mean that wasn't the case. The army officers very frequently did do so, especially Southern Army officers. Um, in the immediate antebellum period, there are many officers from uh, what, what we'd call the Upper South, so Virginia, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, and many of them did bring enslaved people with them. Mm -hmm. um, so the Dred Scott case, for example, was about a man, you know, Dred Scott, who was uh, taken into Minnesota territory. And he, of course, being that was part of... Uh, the old Northwest and Northwest Ordinance said, no slavery here. He challenged that in court. Yeah. So I see even uh, some bearskin rugs um, oh, with the, uh, the skull and the teeth. And uh, is that uh, realistic? Not Historically realistic. accurate? And we, we, you know, uh, I don't know how much your listeners want me to go into some of this stuff. <laughs> um, but no, our understanding is a lot of this is based on actual manifests that were available for certain for officers. Now, man, many of those are lost, but many of them were preserved, showing what they transported. You know, just like today, you have the you have the slip from the mover saying everything that's supposed to be traveling with you. So we were able to kind of do a little reconstruction. And so these are also even based on photographs of officers' quarters, whether here at Fort Laramie or other historic forts in the West. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Lead on. Oh, certainly. Yeah, so like I was saying, so this is, a, you know, a comfortable middle-class or middle-class home in a lot of ways. So, you know, very, very nice dining room, kitchen in the back. And upstairs. Narrow stairway. Very narrow. Well, this was not, not designed as a duplex. So I don't know how much you want me to talk about the historic buildings, um, but this actually was originally built as the commanding officer's quarters and then was divided. So this would have actually, there's a staircase on the other side of this wall here that's exactly the same. It would have been a more <laughs> normal width. Gotcha. But yeah, and you can of course see here's the, uh, here's the bedroom for the officer and his wife, the master bedroom, if you will, and then back here, a spare bedroom or a bedroom for the children. Wow. Yeah. Three beds. Three beds. Well, that, you know, it wouldn't have been uncommon, you know, for all the, uh, you know, 
younger children or children to a certain age to travel with the family. So trying to squeeze them into this space. So a little more cramped than, uh, you know, what you might think. It's, this is not a, a ranch home in the suburbs. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Got a nice rocking horse in there and a toy drum. Absolutely. Keep those kids happy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, feel free to take a peek back here. It's, again, kind of typical 1870s kitchen. That's a heavy-duty stove. Yeah, imagine uh, you know transporting that. Uh, <laughs> even even in this time when you would have come most of the way by rail to Cheyenne, but imagine you know the hundred some miles from Cheyenne in the in the back of a wagon. Wow. Uh, That's got to be a couple hundred pounds at least. Yeah, at least exactly. And then uh, to to think that you got to keep stoking it. Oh, yeah, well the amount of wood was it was enormous. Uh, the army actually did ration. Uh, would especially in posts like this so officers based on their rank would get slightly more cords per winter um, but you're talking about imagine you know the when you're driving uh, in or away there are the huge fields uh, north of Fort Laramie still part of the uh, the actual historic site um, those would have been filled with you know horses like they are now we have a we do have a, a herd of horses here for the winter uh, they come down from uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. They're the oh, really? uh, the pack horses. This is their winter uh, forage and pasture. There would have been horses like that, but there also would have been essentially football fields worth of wood stacked in these sort of trapezoidal shapes, and those would have been the wood rations for the fort. That actually would have been a lot of the work of enlisted men here, uh, not combat, but just simply getting ready for the uh, the winter, you know, uh, and for the summer in the winter in the winter time, uh, vice versa. That constant work of wood detail up in the Laramie Mountains, bring the wood here, it's milled, it's chopped, it's stacked, it's ready to go for the winter time. Then in the winter time, you cut ice out of the river, put it in the ice houses to prepare for the summer, and you just repeat again and again and again. Um, you can see why some enlisted men called uh, the army in this period Uncle Sam's workhouse. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> you asked about being a town, and so this gives you some of the idea, like especially in the later period, you know, after 1876 and 77, after the height of the so-called Great Sioux War, this was in many ways, you know, a little town on the plains for the army here. Picket fences, boardwalks, uh, you know, these two-story <laughs> gabled buildings, uh, birdbath, uh, which we even have today, you know, which we fill with water. So I was wondering, is that historic? Uh, the location is, but my understanding is that obviously there's been, you know, some refinishing of the concrete sure, and so on. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, Officer's Row here. Um, the Army, you know, in the, in the period, in the 19th century, what they wanted to do was they wanted to build, uh, you know, basically fast and cheap um, and with the best locally available materials. Um, so here in eastern Wyoming, <laughs> uh, there aren't very many good locally available materials. Uh, there are some, you know, ponderosa pines, and there would have been even then up in the, uh, the Hartville Uplift north of Guernsey. Uh, but not very many. They would have been pretty short. There would have been more even farther away in, uh, in the Laramies. Um, so, okay, so then your other option is stone. Build out of stone. Unfortunately, the limestone here, uh, you know, the gray rocks uh, that you might see at Gray Rocks Reservoir, which the state runs as a recreation area, um, it's not very strong. <laughs> it tends to crumble. Uh, so the other alternative then is to make buildings out of concrete, which they did. So they took that limestone, uh, put it into kilns, uh, baked it at, you know, a couple thousand degrees and to make actual lime, mixed it with, uh, you know, rocks from the bluffs here or from the rivers, and then poured these concrete buildings. Um, unfortunately, the problem is this is before Portland cement, so it's not waterproof. Um, once the roofs came off, uh, 
they began to deteriorate. So we are doing our best that we can to keep them uh, stabilized and preserved here. Uh, so they're, they're part of the story, the, uh, the remnants of Officer's Row here. But uh, unfortunately, you know, it would be very difficult to reconstruct these uh, safely. So, Just because the walls are so precarious, perhaps? Uh, that's my understanding. Um, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an archaeologist or even really a historic preservation person, but talking with folks, part of it is precarity of the walls, but what we can do is stabilize it. And, you know, and, and they've been standing uh, like this for now 120-some years. Um, a lot of it with our effort starting in the 19, uh, you know, 30s and 40s, the Park Service, you know, patching here and there, putting in a little stabilization. So yeah. we'll see how long they last, though. Yeah. Hopefully a long uh, time further. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're out at Fort Laramie National Historic Site in eastern Wyoming, along with uh, Ranger Clayton Hansen taking a tour of this fort grounds. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. So Clayton, um, we're, we're along Officer's Row now and we're, we're coming up to Old Bedlam, which uh, is unique in many ways. Um, I understand it's one of, if not the oldest standing building in Wyoming? Uh, yes, uh, so, or at least the oldest standing uh, wood frame building in Wyoming. There's a lot of, you know, there's a little bit of debate here and there about, uh, about older structures that were built of adobe or of stone. And of course, you know, there are Native American structures on the ground, like uh, the Medicine Wheel in the Bighorn Mountains that are certainly much older than this. Um, but this does date from 1849, just after this was acquired by the army, they built, um, uh, basically this is gonna be officer's quarters and also a headquarters uh, for the commanding officer. So right next to the location of Old Fort John, uh, the, former, the former fur trading post, which was, became kind of a nucleus of the, uh, of the army's presence here. And so this has been maintained, people have lived in it, whether the army or, or otherwise, until this became a national park. And then we, 
restored it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, now, when we say officers' quarters, um, what, what rank would you have to be to get a room here? Ah, uh, well, that's uh, that's that's a good question. So, it depends on the era. You know, sometimes we would have more senior officers in Old Bedlam. Um, so, if we walk when we walk through, you'll see that this is part of the building is set up as it would have been in the 1860s when uh, when Colonel Collins was here um, with the Ohio Volunteers. <laughs> but it got its nickname Old Bedlam because. Uh, it was actually mostly junior unmarried officers. So uh, you imagine these men, uh, mostly in their early 20s, just fresh out of West Point, um, and how it might have been a little bit noisy. You know, the nickname probably came from the more senior officers, thinking this is a, a madhouse, quote-unquote, because of these, uh, these young officers here. I bet. I bet. It must have been pretty crazy. I mean, uh, first time out of the country, so to speak, coming west to the frontier. Exactly. And, you know, and just in, in like uh, if... Remembering probably uh, you know, my, my early days in my 20s, maybe yours and some of your listeners, you know, they left a little graffiti. We do have some photos of that and we've reproduced some of it in, the, in some of these buildings just to give you an, a sense of what they would have done. You know, sign their names on the wall. I was here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go inside, see what it looks like. Certainly. So, so, okay. so is, the, is the exterior paint uh, historic? I mean, that beautiful white snowy and then the, the green trim? Uh, well, it is based on research that that was uh, one of the colors uh, here. So that's the other thing. The Army, again, some of the paint colors would have changed over time. It would have depended what, when you visited. But we have a very nice photographs of this building, and it is this brilliant white. So very clearly, this was the exterior was whitewashed or painted white. So, okay. And again, imagine using that limestone probably to make that whitewash. <laughs> Must have been fun painting it too. Oh yeah, speaking of Uncle Sam's workhouse. <laughs> but yeah, so on this side, you know, we this is set up, like I mentioned, during the Civil War. Um, the regular army was mostly fighting in the East, uh, along with many, many volunteer units. So, but volunteer units were sent to um, man the posts out west. So on this side of Old Bedlam, you can see what it'll look like, say, in 1864 or so, when, uh, when William Collins um, would have been here. So uh, Colonel Collins. Uh, his son Casper Collins, is, uh, the fort was named for him after he died during a conflict with Native Americans uh, near present-day Casper, and Casper is named for his son, and Fort Collins down in Colorado is named for Colonel Collins. So, Didn't know that. Yeah. I see he brought his spittoon along with him. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, no, yeah, tobacco use, very, very common in the 19th century, whether cigars, whether um, chewing tobacco, um, you know, visitors from other countries commented on this throughout the 19th century. Americans were spitting everywhere. So I don't know, I don't know if your if your if your listeners want to hear about that. But uh, even even Dickens talks about it in his, his uh, notes from America about how he was kind of repelled by it. Like, <laughs> so yeah, we moved from his office to you know the dining room, and but you can see how busy you know it would have been. Um, again, a little bit of a reconstruction here, but not not too far from uh, from what we've gotten from descriptions from others who visited here. You know, crumpled paper on the floor. And on the tables, you know, obviously, this was a busy post, even in the Civil War. This is a regimental headquarters, um, like I said, one of the biggest posts on the plains. So you know, about 1,200 men would have had, this would have been in some ways their home, even if they might have been sent to an outpost elsewhere. So it's like that Fort Casper, for example, I talked about around, mm -hmm. or Platbridge Station, which is what that area was known as earlier. Now to house all those people, I mean, obviously, you've got the military barracks. Mm -hmm. um, where did the civilians live? Uh, well, some of them had their own uh, their own houses. Um, when we get to the post trader store, I'll point out where the location of the post trader's house would have been. 
Um, though he would have been a in a different class than a lot of those civilian employees, let's just put it that way. Others would have had homes or rooms attached to their buildings, especially the civilian contractors uh, who worked for the army, you know, the civilian quartermaster staff, civilian commissary, uh, blacksmiths, and so on. They might have had a room attached to their uh, shop or just a small house nearby. Um, and then, of course, in the broader area, uh, many of the mixed heritage uh, people who would have traded here um, as well and been very closely connected with the post-trader, you know, they would have had their homes uh, whether uh, cabins or teepees or some mix in the sort of surrounding countryside. So it would have kind of been a, a pretty sprawling complex if you think about Fort Laramie in the big sense, you know, covering this whole little bowl here in the Laramie Valley. So must have been quite the sight to see after you've been coming west from St. Louis and all of a sudden you come up over a rise and you see this bustling community. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it is very memorable. You know, you read these memoirs, you read these diaries of, of immigrants um, and they are very like, this is one of those, they're, they're always talking about in reference to Fort Laramie, especially after they've left um, Fort Kearney, which is now Kearney, Nebraska. Sure. You know, it's, it's very like, oh my gosh, we're here, or we're, or we're two days out, and then we're finally there. <laughs> it definitely was suddenly, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, they're back in what would have been, in their view, civilization. So. Yeah. I mentioned the junior officers, and how it got its nickname as being kind of a, a location where they would have been a little rowdy. For example, you know, this is the site in the, uh, 18, in the late 1860s during Red Cloud's War, or so-called Red Cloud's War, the war over the Bozeman Trail, um, that they were even having a ball here, though I always wonder exactly what they meant by that on, uh, on Christmas Day when, uh, when uh, you know, Juan Felipe, so-called Portuguese Phillips, arrived with news of the Fetterman uh, fight, the Fetterman Massacre. Uh, but yeah, you can see this maybe a, a junior officers living quarters shared. It would have been, you can see a little more of a kind of a, almost dorm room, <laughs> fraternity house kind of look on this side. And when we actually look in their, uh, their bedroom, you can definitely see the, uh, the resemblance to <laughs> the current day. I mean, you want, we want to know who, I was here. <laughs> uh, the, all those signatures. Those aren't originals, are they? No, no, they're, they are reproductions, but they are based on a photograph that we have of of, of a room uh, like this. Got this beautiful covered porch facing west. You got that afternoon sun. Boy, it must be a beautiful place in the, the wintertime when things are getting cold. Uh, get, oh, no, get a little warmed, captured. Yeah, pulling the shutters and, uh, and, and batting down the hatches. Yeah, especially in, in, those, in those days. I mean, you know, you know I mentioned the, the high temperatures are very similar, but you know, some of those cold days, uh, you know, seem much, much chillier based on the descriptions I've read. You know, many days where they talk about the uh, temperature being, you know, negative 20, negative 40. Um, and, you know, living around here, I've certainly experienced, you know, below zero days, uh, quite a few of them, but I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember a negative 40 day. <laughs> and just to sort of point out over here, this is sort of the edge of the old post. That's the old powder house there. So that would have been, well, a little close to Old Bedlam, but about as far as you wanted to put it. But then as the post grew in size, more and more buildings were constructed, and this kind of got swallowed up by the rest of the post and then used as storage. Because uh, you want to, don't want to keep the powder in the middle of all these buildings, so, <laughs> or it could be a danger. It, is that stone building the powder house, or are yes. these uh, re remnant walls? That uh, the stone building is a powder house. Okay. So, but yeah, that's from, that dates from the 1850s. But yeah, and you can even see, if we walk across the parade grounds, you can see kind of the foundations of the old fort here. This kind of would have been the edge across here as opposed to this other, you know, 50 yards or so that we've walked. 
since then, where you then see the 1860s barracks along here. And then we've got these ruins here, some sort of foundation. Yeah, this was uh, infantry barracks. There would have been another set of infantry barracks over there. You can see the, the those mounds, also foundations. And then, uh, you know, part of the army in the 19th century is it's a very rigidly divided, you know, between officers and enlisted men. And of course, and then a divide between uh, the army and the civilian employees of the, uh, the War Department of the Army. So you notice how there's uh, almost this kind of police presence on the other side. Those are the guard houses. So where the guards would have been stationed and where if an uh, enlisted soldier had committed a crime, he would have been sent for punishment. Um, usually, you know, confinement, bread and water, um, hard labor, you name it. So yeah, put, the, uh, put that kind of threat uh, closer to them. So yeah, additional officers' quarters here, and we're, we're coming up on the, uh, the Post Trader store. Next week, Kurt and Clayton return to explore the rest of Fort Laramie, with stops at the Post Trader store, the military barracks, the commissary, and the site of treaty talks in 1851 and 1868 with the Northern Plains Indian Nations. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. While Fort Laramie certainly is off the beaten path, it captures a robust period of the nation's history and is well worth a visit. Next week, Ranger Hansen and I continue our tour of the grounds and the history they've experienced. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.